this fourth episode of the Born to Be Well podcast, I interviewed Nina Ferguson. Nina is a feeding specialist and she works with babies and children who are either having feeding issues or are just picky eaters in general. So if you're a parent, I'm pretty sure you're going to get a lot of value from this episode as Nina shares with us some helpful tips and strategies we can use as parents when it comes to helping your picky eaters at home. So whether it be your child doesn't want to eat as much veggies as they should, or they don't want to try new types of proteins, whatever that is, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of value from what Nina shares with us today. And most importantly, this will help you to bring more peace around mealtime at home and making sure that you don't get into this power struggle with your child around mealtime. Because after all, all we want as parents is to have this uh, precious moment of the day where we eat as a whole, as a family, with our kids. And, and, you know, it's just fun and enjoyable. So we definitely want to bring it back to your home if that's not the case at the moment. And what Nina shares with us in this interview will help you to do so. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode. Hi guys, welcome to the Born to Be Well podcast. I'm your host, Marie-Yves Bernard, and in this podcast, we'll talk about a whole bunch of different topics related to health, healing, and personal development. So let's dive right into it. So hi and welcome to the Born to Be Well podcast. Today I have the pleasure to have with me uh, Nina Ferguson. So welcome to the podcast, Nina. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. So um, Nina, you're working with uh, children uh, with feeding disorders. Um, do you want to tell us just a little bit more about, I'm curious to know, why have you decided to work more specifically in this field? And just also maybe tell us what's your background in terms of like, um, are you a doctor, a nurse? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, awesome. So um, I am a speech language pathologist, a doctoral trained, so I'm a PhD. Um, I did not start out wanting to work with children. In fact, I started out wanting to work with adult rehab strokes and neuro diseases and traits events and acute care kinds of things with the adult world. I did not start out wanting to work with children um, at the beginning part of my career. I mean, I, I came into the field of speech language pathology because I fell in love with feeding and swallowing. So the swallowing disorders, the actual mechanics, the neurology of the swallow itself and how we actually accomplish getting food past our airway into our esophagus was extremely fascinating to me because your throat is a dual chamber kind of thing. You breathe there mm-hmm. as well as you swallow there. And that dual chamber then um, is very regulated in um, sensory feedback loops and neurology and all of those kinds of things. So I started out really wanting to do the adult world um, and wanted nothing to do with kids because back then I didn't even want kids. So it's, <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time. I do have kids now, but yeah. I didn't want kids. I didn't want anything to do with kids. In graduate school, I was like, please let me get as far away from kids as I can get. 
Um, and then um, lo and behold, you know, life happens, things change. And um, I have a 21 year old. So um, when I ended up having children, um, I was like, oh, these little guys are kind of cool, cool. They're curious. They're very different. Um, when you're looking at from a swallowing standpoint, when we're looking at in an adult, we're looking at rehabilitating the swallow. So an adult had a swallow, had a pretty much their normal function. Something happened mm-hmm. neurologically, structurally, something happened, and then they have to relearn. Yeah. But when you're looking at kids and children and babies, especially babies, right? It's normally habilitation. It's normally they have not learned initially, right? So we have to look at it from a little bit different development standpoint. Um, and the way their structures change from birth to five years, they're really learning to feed and swallow as their structures are moving and changing as their cognitive development is moving and changing as their sensory development. So all of these moving parts that affect the swallow is moving and changing on top of the fact that it's not just the child, right? So when you're working with babies and children, you're, it, it's, it's the relationship that you're working on often. So it's not only that there's a medical complication or a structural abnormality or a syndrome or anything like that, it's not are born early, right? Or mm-hmm. breathing problem. It's a. It's not only what's going on with that child, and what's going on with their body and and their developmental process and medical comorbidities, but now you've added a caregiver to the mix, right? And now you have to kind of understand that you're not just working with the child; you're working with the the parent. So, mm-hmm. in my in my process to learn to work with kids, I started with the adults. And um, I did not start as a PhD. I started just as a a master's degree student wanting to do nothing but feeding and swallowing. And then, um, of course, they don't let you do that in in a master's degree program. You have to do speech and language and articulation and stuttering and voice and all the other things that we do. Um, And so, but swallowing has always been my my first focus and it's been my passion. regardless of what group I've worked with. And um, so when I, when I transitioned to work with kids and I found the NICU um, working with preterm infants, they scared the dickens out of me. Um, They still do, um, but they're my favorite thing to do. So working through having children and then continuing to educate myself in my career, I found myself working in an NICU and I absolutely love it. It's the only thing and my whole profession that I have never gotten bored with, that I have not um, felt like I know it all because these little boogers, as soon as you think you know it all, will teach you something new. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a di- there's so much of a dynamic that happens when babies are born early to understand the maturation process, not only in utero, but once they're born in the, that they have to continue to develop when they're supposed to still be in the womb, right? But they're having to develop in this harsh reality. So that then became something that I, um, I apps, it was the best thing ever. Like everything a speech pathologist does, except for fluency, sorry, stuttering people, um, is amazing, but the, the babies are by far the best. And so I started getting into this world and I knew all about the research from the adult world because that's where my, my initial focus was. And we have so much literature on 
What are the signs of aspiration in adults? What is going to signal that things are going down the wrong pipe? How do we know that the it's dangerous for adults to eat? Like we have tons of literature on it for years and years and years. But when I started looking at this literature for babies back then, I think there was two, maybe three articles and it oh wasn't even focused on preterm infants. It was focused. They were a subgroup within the study. So it wasn't being studied. And I'm like, and so I knew, I, I knew when I was working with these babies, like, look, this is not going well. This is what's happening. Every time I see this, this is, but there was nothing in the research literature. So that's when I went back to get my PhD. I figured if nobody else is doing it, then behold, I'm going to figure out how to do research so that I can answer these research questions to be able to have that foundation in the literature to support clinical practice. And so that's when I went back to get my PhD. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of where I went from adults and, and came into the world of kids and um, I've done everything pretty much so a speech pathologist can do. I've worked in every environment, home health, um, the VA even, which when I taught, I got to work in the VA, which is really, really cool. Um, and so I've worked in the NICU, acute care outpatients. I've taught at the university level. Um, what else I've done? I've owned a private practice, brick and mortar, um, which now is all done virtually since COVID. That's, that's yeah. kind of gone mm-hmm. away. So um, yeah, I've worked in person, worked virtual now, which has been an eye-opening experience, which has been actually many, many blessings have come out of COVID, I believe. Um, so yeah, it's been a tragedy as well, but yeah. yeah, so that's kind of, yeah, so that's, so kids are my favorite, absolutely under the age of probably four, okay. like baby babies for sure are my, my passion, but um, under the age of four, when you got sensory processing issues, anxieties, um, you've got autism, you've got all of these, these things that come together that create, um, what's the right word? They, they create a, a platform for struggle for Mm. parents. Yeah, definitely. Um, We hear a lot of parents that are actually in fact struggling with, um, the mealtime with their, their kids. Right. So your background is so interesting because you have a very good understanding of like the physiological process, what's happening when it, and a child or a human is actually swallowing. And now I'm curious to know, does like, because of course you work with the babies or the kids and the parents. So I'm sure for the parents out there who are listening, um, when do we actually know that we need to either seek for um, some help with our kid um, in terms of like uh, feeding them? Is that because the child refused to eat? Is that because the child is having a very, um, uh, very few foods that they are eating? And at what age can we actually start seeing, okay, maybe there is something that's going on and I need to seek some help for that? Um, so we are seeing that that's an interesting question. So it depends on the age of the child and it depends on the, all the medical comorbidities. So of course, if your child is born premature, then that is, you're going to have feeding issues, um, because they can't, they're not supposed to be born yet. They're not supposed to be breathing and swallowing. Right. So when they're baby babies and that's, you know, even if they're healthy preterms, even if they don't have 
brain bleeds or breathing problems or a syndrome or whatever else, even if they're simply born early, what we know is that the neurologic integrity to coordinate a swallow and a breath in a sequence is not mature yet. We know that at about 34 weeks, if they're born early, gestation, um, they have uh, emerging skills to be able to hold their breath and swallow. So all of us hold our breath to swallow. We cannot swallow and breathe at the same time. Mm -hmm. It doesn't go well. Mm -hmm. Food takes the path of least resistance, which the airway is larger than the entrance to the esophagus where the food travels to your stomach. So we know that this coordination to be able to suck, hold your breath and swallow starts to emerge around 34 weeks. The other thing that we know is that babies do not have a laryngeal cough reflex, okay? So that reflex to cough and clear actually doesn't start to emerge until 44 weeks. So even newborns, full-term newborns don't have that yet. Hmm. And so what happens then, how they protect their airways, even when they're preterm, is they hold their breath, but they don't cough. They just swallow, swallow, swallow. Well, because they're born early, they don't have the neurologic integrity to, to stop holding their breath and breathe. So that's when parents see my baby stops breathing, their heart rate drops, they turn blue. All okay. of these things, scary things happen because if they have the neurologic integrity to protect their airway, often they don't have the neurologic integrity to start breathing again. Right. So this happens very early in preterm infants. So about 37 weeks gestation, we see that start to get better in terms of their ability to suck, hold their breath and swallow, suck, hold my breath and swallow. But remember when they're holding their breath, they also have to breathe in and out between that suck and swallow. So it's not just they're holding their breath. They have to have enough time to breathe in and breathe out. And so a lot of times they don't have good lung reserves because they're born early. So this can happen very early for preterm infants that they're going to have problems. And okay. so if you have a child that's born preterm, you should be working with um, somebody who understands how to teach you how to help your baby breathe. Okay. Okay. If they're older, if they're term, then what happens, we see often, um, we see bottle and breast aversions happen, right? So what happens in that scenario is, and I'm not sure about Canada, what you guys' recommendations are for how many calories a day a baby needs or calories per weight. We are high here in the United States, meaning that our, our system encourages parents to, um, say it's like 120 kilocalories per kilogram. It's, it's like high, it's on the high mm -hmm. side compared to the rest of the world. So what happens then is parents are told your baby's not eating enough. They're not gaining enough weight, right? Because they're not meeting this average yeah. that they're supposed to eat. So then parents get anxious and start pushing. And in those first early months, babies, uh, one to three months, babies are neurologically driven to suck. So it means that you can be successful in encouraging your baby to eat beyond their capability or their comfort levels right mm. so it's interesting because at three months now babies newborn reflexes integrate now baby can choose to swallow or not okay. you have lost the power to force your child to eat from 
The moment those reflexes integrate for the rest of their life, you can lead a baby to a breast or a bottle or a chair or a spoon, but you cannot force them to swallow. You mm-hmm. can lead them there, but there is no more forcing. And so that's when we see the bottle versions or even breast. It happens sometimes on breast, not as often, but we do see some. Um, then the baby gets failure to gain weight because the interaction between the parent and the child, the parent is anxious because the child, they think the child's not eating enough. They encourage the baby to eat beyond what they're capable or comfortable doing. Now the child is afraid because that's an unpleasant experience being waterboarded, milk boarded, forced to eat beyond what you're capable of doing. Now, every time I see a bottle or a parent moving to the chair where they're typically going to feed me, I'm going to start freaking out. I'm going to stop eating. I'm going to fight it. Now I'm going to lose weight because I'm afraid that they're going to push me to do something I can't do or I'm uncomfortable. Now the fear in mom gets worse. Mom starts pushing more or caregiver pushes more. Baby gets more afraid. It's a vicious fear cycle. Yeah, exactly. And so basically, um, like the, the child, like it's, the child will start to be scared. If I can say a food as early as breastfeeding or bottle feeding, because we like, yeah. So because basically we don't listen to the signs of the baby. I'm hungry. We kind of tend to force them to, to drink milk. Mm -hmm. Um, even though they don't, they are not hungry. Is that what I hear? Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. I have a, a, a lactation and a dietitian on my team and she says, she got this wonderful picture of a little chihuahua dog and she's got a picture of a German shepherd, this big, massive dog. Yeah. She says, you cannot feed a chihuahua enough to make them the size of a German shepherd. And you cannot starve a German shepherd to make them the size of a chihuahua. Genetics plays a role. We have kids who are thriving at the second and third percentile on that weight chart Mm -hmm. doing perfectly because they're little chihuahuas. Their bodies just are not going to be at the 50th percentile. And I think when kids start getting below that 10th percentile on that chart, everybody wants to start feeding tubes. They want to start all these things without really looking at, is this baby going to thrive at this percentile and be just Mm -hmm. fine? Or are there developmental concerns, lack of nutrition concerns? Are there concerns where we need to, like you have both parents who are German shepherds, unlikely to have a chihuahua sized baby, right? So are we looking at smaller parents who also probably on their growth chart were below the 20th percentile, 10th percentile, right? Is this just genetics or is this really a problem? Yeah. And even a lot of physicians don't look at it this way. You're not at least at the 50th percentile then, and they don't care if you're at the 90th percentile. A lot of times we want to talk about the overweight kids, but um, and it really doesn't matter how you get them there. A lot of times kids can be eating unhealthy foods, nothing but starches and be okay. But they have this, like you talked about earlier, restricted food repertoire, but they're not getting those micronutrients from the vegetables, mm-hmm. the fruits and the meats, right? Exactly. So you can have a kid who's actually great on the percentile weight charts. It's very nutritionally deficient. Mm-hmm, exactly. And those kids are ignored a lot of times. Yeah. It's so funny that you give this analogy because uh, I... I had just like um, a flashback from my first pregnancy. Uh, I was actually not gaining much weight. I had, um, and the doctor was saying, don't worry, that's totally fine. And he gave me the exact same analogy. 
you cannot have like this huge uh, dog if you are a chihuahua. So I'm a, a fairly skinny woman. And he told me, you won't have like a massive baby. You're kind of small. The dad is kind of small too. So it, it's normal. And it really made me feel, okay, everything is fine because we're so driven to... Um, to hear like people having the huge babies, very high in the chart for the, the body weight and stuff. Um, so this is something very important that we have to remind ourselves, right? And, then and I think it's interesting to look at different cultures as well, right? I think, you know, the, the cute fat baby with the big cheeks and all of that, like different yeah. cultures play a role in your, your, what your parents, you know, were told and their parents yeah. were told. And their parents. So culture is very interesting in development in general, not just feeding, but if you look at some of the countries that carry babies on their back for the full first year, those babies don't walk till later because they're not put on the ground to give them the experience. Right. Mm -hmm. And so looking at development based on culture is something different. I had a family from Brazil, their children drank a bottle until kindergarten. That was just the way they were. And that's very unusual for, uh, for me in the United States at least, but you also have to look at culture as a, a, a contributing factor often and dynamics, even between grandparents and parents right if some of what we want the parents to do around the table to help the child gain independence and gain skill and and have some control okay because they have not had control because parents have been forcing them to eat yeah. giving them back control giving them a way to build trust okay it may be that grandma's like, uh, no, I didn't do that. This is what we did. And this is what you should do. And then you get some mismatch of information for the parents. And that's a very stressful place to be for parents. It's very stressful for say, grandma, auntie, cousin to make these suggestions, maybe a doctor, make a suggestion, a therapist, make another suggestion. And they're left going, I have no idea what to do, but my kid's not eating. And parents will try some very creative, interesting things to get children to eat. I've, I'm going to uh, say I've heard it all. But I'm, I'm sure not you've sure. heard so many like amazing stories. Yeah. So, sure. so uh, you said something very important. Um, so this is basically like the parent and the child are really learning trust through this feeding process, right? Yes. So basically... Uh, does that mean that if the parents tends to force a little bit of the child to eat, it will sort of um, just like do not uh, build as much trust or yes. something like that? Yes. The child will learn to not trust the parent. So um, around food. Exactly. Yeah. And okay. so it creates a, a, um, a lack of a symbiotic relationship. And so then what happens is my baby is refusing my breast or my attempt to feed them. My baby doesn't like me, right? Therefore, my baby won't eat for me. So mm -hmm. therefore, my baby doesn't like me. I'm a bad mom. I can't even feed my baby. It's the basic thing that I was put on this earth to do. My body is meant to do it. I can't even do that. I stink as a mom. I've got to try harder. I've got to push harder. I So it's this, then the psychological, um, our brains are, are built to have more negative thoughts than positive yeah. ones. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure you know that, yeah. but, um, so it's very, 
very easy for parents to go down this rabbit hole of depression and postpartum depression is already a big thing, especially if the baby is refusing because they're feeling pressure and helping moms stay grounded and understand your job as a mom when it comes to feeding and a, ba- a baby. And even when it comes a little bit later, we'll talk about it. But as a baby, when you have a baby, your job is to responsibility determine what your baby's going to eat, breast milk or formula, maybe where you're going to feed your baby, right? In this chair or this chair, what position maybe that you're going to feed your baby in that's most comfortable. Those are in your responsibility. It is your baby's responsibility from the day they are born, from the time they are born. It is their responsibility to decide whether they're going to eat and how much they're going to eat. And as soon as you, you come to this realization and there's a, there's a division of responsibilities by Ellen Satter, S-A-T-T-E-R. She has a whole thing on division of responsibilities. But as soon as parents realize it is not their responsibility to determine whether they eat or how much they eat, take some of that pressure off. Then we can start building trust around a mealtime routine, around feeding your baby because your baby's communicating or your child's communicating they need food, right? So it's interesting when I worked in the NICU, I I always thought this was crazy. So you have a nurse who has say three babies to feed at at 12 o'clock, right? Mm -hmm. And baby A is like dead asleep, not even communicating they need care, right? Baby B is stirring and rooting, and and starting to arouse and baby c is screaming their head off because they're starving right yeah and it never fails that first baby it's 12 o'clock i've always fed you first i'm going to feed you first right now i'm going to wake a sleeping baby to feed that baby and why not do it the other way around why not the screaming baby that's screaming i'm hungry (laughs) feed that baby then go to the one that's stirring because by the time you get to them they're probably going to be screaming Mm-hmm. feed that baby. And then by the time you get to that one, the next one's probably going to be arousing the weight, right? So learning the, the, the smacking of the lips, the rooting, you know, the, 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 what is your baby telling you when it's time for them to eat? And then what are the signals that your baby's giving you that they're overwhelmed with what you're doing? And it's the same. My other favorite one in the NICU is when babies do this, you know, clearly if I say this, you're going to know that I mean, stop right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Never. It, it, it cracks me up. Babies do this in the NICU when they're coming at them with a bottle and parents go, Oh, you're giving me a high five. <laughs> no, your baby's telling you to stop. And so what happens is because this is now interfering with feeding, they're going to swaddle the baby's hands down in a blanket. Now the baby can't communicate. Oh. So then the baby's eyebrows, they chin tug, they avoid, they yeah. spit it out. They do everything they can to tell you I can't handle this. This is too much. Mm-hmm. So and this is really your job as a parent to be able to to read properly uh, the body language of our baby. And yes. this way we will be able to really understand what they want. And this is a, a something that we have to learn. It's a skill yes. that we don't have yet as parents when we have our first child, right? Yeah, you don't. And even when, as your children get older, right? When, um, 
something comes on the table. Broccoli is my favorite one, just because you know, <laughs> most kids want to eat broccoli. Um, broccoli comes on the on on the center of the table. We also, as a culture in the United States, and I'm not sure about Canada, got into this whole buffet style or eating in the car, going to dance or baseball mm. or whatever. And kids learn to eat by watching parents eat. And this other idea of I'm going to sit down to feed my child. What? You, no, you sit down to eat with your child. So you should be eating when they're eating, yeah. right? When they get older, right? Because they learn by watching you. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're driving, eating your hamburger and they're looking at the back of your head, what are they learning? You know, they're not, they're not learning. And so the broccoli thing, if parents put the food on the middle of the table, like the family style meal, now the kids seeing different foods, they're smelling different foods, they're being around it, they're learning all about the comfort, the color, all of these things, right? But say it's broccoli and you put broccoli on the child's plate and they do this and look away. <laughs> that, that, that broccoli is not was something they're gonna eat, right? So maybe you should move the broccoli to a side plate yeah. where it's a little further away from them, where it can sit there or maybe you can have them move it to a side plate. Oh, that's, we don't have to eat the broccoli. You can just pick it up and put it on, on the on the plate for learning about it. Or I call it the no thank you plate. Learn, you know, learn yeah. about it later, you know? Mm-hmm. And another, and the other thing is we have OCD parents who don't want their children to get messy. Well, a kid who won't touch food won't eat food. So, mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean they're not gonna have manners later on. I hear this all the time. I want my kid to have manners. Your yeah. child is six to nine months old. How many manners do you want them to have? Like, <laughs> They need to, they need to have the spaghetti face. They need to have it all over them. They need to feel it, smell it, look at it, inspect it, pull it apart, lick it, spit it back out. Because through this, they actually are in contact with foods as well. Even though they don't eat it and swallow it, they will smell it, touch it, feel the texture and so on. And this is part of, for them to, to get to learn this new food, right? Yes. And so sometimes having your child swallow the food should not be your goal. Having your child be comfortable around the food on their plate or comfortable smelling the food or licking the food. And some kids are braver than others. Some kids are going to pick up the whatever, you know, other kids are going to be like, I did this commercial um, for my office when I had it open. It was really awesome. I had, my son was about nine and he'll eat anything. He really will. He's, 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 will eat anything. Okay. And so I ordered these salt and vinegar crickets from the Orient because they're snacks, right? Yeah. And they're bugs, they're crickets. And I, we did this commercial of me going here, Garrett, take a bite, take a bite, take a bite. And he's like, no, no. <laughs> I was going, no, it's good. They're good. They, I know they're crickets, but they taste good. They just taste like chips. And he's like, no, no. And the further I came from him, the more resistant he got. And so we were finished kind of making this commercial and I was like, okay, we're going to clean up now. And so I'm in the middle of just cleaning up. My graduate student is there and he goes, really, how bad can it be? Yeah, I'm going to try it. But, but I took the pressure off, right? Mm-hmm. I was cleaning up. I was not asking him to do anything. The kid ate the salt and vinegar cricket and said, oh, a little salty. Other than that, not bad. Hmm. You know, and I've got the whole thing on video and I'm like, wow, as soon as I, and I, I mean, this is a kid to literally eat anything. Yeah. As yeah. soon as I took the pressure off, I didn't give my opinion about the food other than I wanted to take it out. You know, like he ate it. So a lot of times if you stick to a mealtime routine and you, and you include cleanup in your mealtime routine, so kids need a warning, it's time to eat, 
they need a routine to get to the table, a routine around food and, and a cleanup, right? And so when we get to cleanup, we often see kids try new foods because parents have stopped going, you'll like it, take a bite. Yeah. Because and rather stop- than, you stop pressuring. And rather than, I tell parents, rather than say, here, take a bite with your spoon, here, take a bite. Why don't you go? Like then you, 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 you just show them how wonderful the food is, right? You show them and they're going to want what you have, Mm -hmm. right? All kids do. They want your keys, your flip-flops, your shoes, your makeup, your brush, your, you know, your phone. They want what you have. So if you want them to want food, then you need to have the food and be eating it in front of them. So they'll want what you have. Mm -hmm. It's actually... Uh, getting them to be more interested in the food if you show them that you like it that it tastes good as opposed to like pressuring them with like try it try it try it and we often do that right because we want them so much to try that new food so of course from what I hear uh, you just said first we should never force a child to try a new food but we do, do we actually require them to at least put it either on the, the, uh, on the plate just beside their main plate or in their plate? Or like, how far do you go into getting them to get introduced to that new food, if I can say? And that, yeah, and that's going to depend on the child's reaction. So if you put a, a new food, right, and you always give kids foods that you know they like on their plate, not just new foods that they don't like. That's the other yeah. thing, parents, I think, and small portions. Yeah. Like they're tiny humans, okay? <laughs> a bite size to them is very different than a bite size to us. So keep your portions small, your expectations small, and depending on what the child's reaction is to the new food, right? So You might have a child who you put uh, a green pea, two or three on the plate, two or three peas, not two or three spoonfuls, two or three peas on the plate. And you might have a child that looks at it, touches it, picks it up, examines it, smells it, and it'll just taste it. You might have a kid who you put the pea on the plate and they're like, no, I'm not doing this, right? Mm -hmm. And in that case, you wanna say, oh, Oh, this is a green pea. Mm. And you start describing, oh, it's round. It's green. It's sweet. It's, you know, got some butter on it. It's easy to chew. So then you've given them the descriptors, the language they need to understand about that pea. Mm-hmm. And then there's two other peas on the plate, right? So then you can say, you know what? It's okay. Put the pea on the plate. You can put the pea on the plate. And if they still are like, no, no, I'm going to touch that pea then maybe you pick the pee up and go, okay, help mommy. And so then they push your hand over and you drop the pee because now they've interacted with the pee, Yeah. right? They've looked at it and didn't touch it because that was too much. If they completely start to have a meltdown, you need to cover the pee. You need to cover the pee and move it. Okay. Like across the table. So like I have, it's like, it's like, okay, it's positive desensitization. So for instance, if you are scared of spiders, but you had to eat a spider to live. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my right? God. Yeah. So of course you're not going to put the spider right in the plate. You're first going to look at the spider very, very far away and slowly move to. Yeah. Okay. I understand your point. That's yeah, such a good visual there. Yeah. So that's exactly how we do food. And sometimes you might tolerate that spider 
for a short period of time, but longer periods of time cause you so much anxiety, you're going to have a panic attack. So then we cover the spider and move him away. Mm-hmm. Right. Or maybe you could handle him close to you as long as you can't see him, but you know, he's under the napkin. Mm-hmm. And it depends on where their cognitive development is, right? Are they in the physical part of development where their world is still all physical? Are they in the stage of development where they're magical thinkers and everything is a wonder? Like, where are they in their cognitive? Do they have object permanence? Yeah. So does it fall over the, the tray and they still know it exists? Or you cover it with a napkin, do they still know it exists? Do they have that object permanence yet? Mm-hmm. And so if they know it exists, covering it sometimes works, sometimes won't, you know, if they yeah. still know that there's a spider under there. So that, that's, I, I explain it to parents like that. Like, what would it take you to eat that bug, that cricket that Garrett ate? What would it take you to eat that spider Yeah. or to let that spider crawl on you mm-hmm. or to put that spider in your mouth and spit it out because you didn't like the way he wiggled, right? Yeah. Does it make sense? Totally. Yeah. So that's what parents need to understand that that there are some kids who have a, the way their body processes sensory information, have a legitimate fear of the food because it's unfamiliar. And it takes a typically developing kid about 12 to 20 times before um, they will decide whether it's something they like or not. So if you have a kid with sensory processing issues, it could take a million times. I, my 21 year old um, doesn't like sweet potatoes. He hasn't his whole life, his whole life. He's had sweet potatoes on the table. I'm Southern mm-hmm. United States, Southern. We love sweet potatoes. We sweet potato fries. We have sweet potato cakes, like sweet potatoes are a thing. Right. And so, but he's never liked sweet potatoes. And I have literally for 20 years put sweet potatoes in front of him. Mom, I don't still don't like sweet potatoes. He'll either leave them on his plate or he'll move them off. So, um, this, uh, a couple months ago, I was making a cake and he was helping me and it had shredded sweet potatoes in it. And he goes, mom, those are sweet potatoes. I'm like, yes. And they're in a cake. Cakes are yummy. I'm like, so he helped me make the cake. He knew there were sweet potatoes in it. Right. Comes time for the cake. And he's like, yeah, I'll try a piece. It took me 20 years. Oh my God. 20 years of putting sweet potatoes (laughs) in front of my child in different forms different ways for him to decide he's going to eat the sweet potato and he ate it in a cake right isn't that and amazing so- and did he enjoy it he liked it yeah he was yeah. also that's really good so um i don't know that he's going to eat a sweet potato you know yeah yeah but that's such yeah. a great example yeah totally and like going back to you like the principle you just explained about uh food exposure does that apply for a nine months old and like a 10 year old, as an example, that would yeah, be the exact gonna, same thing. Well, uh, well, a nine month old, um, if you think about the sensory properties of food for a second, um, and I do a whole lecture on this for parents and, and students, but the food that a nine month old eats is very different than the food a 10 year old eats. So mm-hmm. you have eight senses. They are all eight of them are required for eating. Okay. And so a nine month old, right, is not gonna be eating a piece of steak. It's probably not gonna be eating a raw apple. It's probably not gonna be eating a grape, right? So the foods that they eat require fewer senses to modulate, integrate with every chew, right? With every bite, every chew, every food, there's fewer of those senses that have to regulate, 
So if I'm eating a pureed, it's the same texture, the flavor might change, the color might change, um, the bite size might change, the way it feels going down my esophagus might change, um, depending on if it's cold or if it's warm. My head rotation might change a little bit depending on where the spoon's coming from and where my head mm. goes, right? So all of those things might change a little bit. But if I'm eating an apple or if I'm eating something fibrous or a carrot, a carrot's my favorite one. A carrot is loud. The sound of food with purees doesn't change, right? Mm. But if you bite a carrot, okay, every time your teeth come together to change the carrot, the sound changes, the texture changes, the flavor changes. It, it, it changes with every single chew. And if you're moving your head and stabilizing your body in a, in a, and your, your feet don't hit the ground and your chair's rocking, now we have all this stuff going on because most of the time the kids' feet aren't touching the ground, right? Because the yeah. chair's too high. I hate those high tables. I don't, they, if you have kids, you don't need a freaking tall table. You need a short table. Mm -hmm. um, and so now my, the child's body's moving, the sound's changing, the shape's changing everything's changing every single time their teeth come down. So their bodies are having to change the way they're processing sensory information with every single chew. If you're doing a raw carrot. Yeah. Or if you're doing an, a juicy apple, that's, that's like that you have to swallow the juice. Now you got skill involved because you're swallowing the juice and holding the apple forward with every chew. You might have juice that has to be swallowed, but you can't let any of the solid get over there because it'll choke you. Mm -hmm. Now you add complex skill to it with the rocking and the moving the head and the changing in the sound and the changing in the taste. Now all of those senses have to change and, and re-regulate to keep homeostasis or a, a, a foundation that is calm in, in their bodies every time they chew. Mm, that's interesting. A nine month old doesn't have to do that. They have some things change every bite. Right. And if they're chewing soft solids or something like if they're choosing like a really soft or mashed table food or soft cube or something like that. Right. Or some soft pasta. Um, but it's not like a carrot. Yeah, exactly. So this is so interesting because we like we don't really think about that. The fact that uh, like uh, the carrot you've just mentioned, it changed the texture, the taste. There is a sound involved and so on. So this is like an evolving process as the child is chewing on, on their food, right? So this yeah. is so interesting. Yeah. And so basically, um, I just want to go back like about what you've mentioned. I really like the image of the spider and wanting to propose a food to your child. So slow exposure. Um, but is that always some sort of a fear around food or is that sometimes it could be involved more some, again, maybe more for older children? Um, we often hear parents saying, oh, he's manipulating me. It, it's, he just yeah. want to eat it. Right. And we talked a little bit about that before. Yeah. So, um, how can we differ, differentiate the two? Is that like yeah. a fear of food or is that the, the children is ma manipulating their parents? <laughs> I, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a 
both the parent and the child, you have to look at both sides of it, right? Yeah. Okay. And so if parents understand it's their job to provide the food, it's the child's job to decide whether they're going to eat it and how much, right? Mm-hmm. The parent's responsibility when you get older is to continue to introduce um, previously refused foods. Mm-hmm. Often parents get into this thing where um, my child doesn't eat green beans, so I don't cook green beans. Therefore, my child doesn't eat green beans, so I don't cook green beans. The child's never going to eat green beans, right? So if the child knows that there is a structure around mealtime, but they are not forced to eat the food, but they are expected to stay at the table for mealtime. They're expected to do whatever level they can do, right? But they're not necessarily expected to take that bite, right? And I, I wish parents would just not say that. Try it, take a bite, like take that out of your, take it out. Show, don't ask or instruct. Show. Okay. Don't ask or instruct, right? So if parents take that out and they understand in our house, you wash, I'm going to tell you it's dinner time. You're going to wash your hands. You're going to come to the table. You're going to sit at the table until dinner time is over. Parents can decide when dinner time is over. It can be a short time or a long time, depending on their child's tolerance level. We're going to clean up. We're going to be all done, right? Got five steps, but cleanup time's coming. You're not going to sit here until midnight to eat your peas. Like, Meal time should be 30 minutes or less, depending on the child's tolerance, mm-hmm. right? And then you don't have the battle of wills. There's no way the child can manipulate you. Mm. You just set the routine and you put, you put preferred and non-preferred foods on there, very small portion sizes with minimal expectation. And you model and show because the we have what's called mirror neurons, and I may be talking to the here, but we have mirror neurons. That's the way we learn. Our brains fire and wire together the same way, whether we are watching an action or doing an action. Okay. So if you were, this is a video game example that I always use. My children were not allowed to play video games, shooting up, banging up video games because watching somebody shoot another human on a video game is the same neural fiber, neural connections, as if you're actually shooting a human. That's the way your brain is wiring, right? Food is no different. If a child is watching you eat, their brain is wiring as if they are actually eating. That's the reason you see kids like, they're like (laughs) staring at you, right? And that's the reason you see little kids, sometimes when parents are holding and you're taking a bite of a sandwich, they're going, Mm. trying to do the same action. You also can tell when a, when a mom or a child, when you I can see it in restaurants all the time, I almost never go anymore because restaurants stress me out. But um, the child is going, here, mom, here, mom, here, mom, here, mom, but they're never going, I'm going to eat it, I'm going to eat it. It's because what have they seen? They've seen here, here, oh, here. Oh, isn't that interesting? Not that, not that if they do that occasionally, it's a big deal, but if that's the only action the child's doing at the table, then that's all they've seen. Yeah. Yeah, so they, they kind of repeat what they've been seeing from their parents, right? So if we kind of switch it around. Like, Have a love like, affair with your spoon. Yeah. <laughs> I tell, I mean, and this is, I mean, I you know how, how much, you know, risque you might want to cut it out. I don't know, but I hope your parents, I want you to have a love affair orgasmic relationship with your spoon. <laughs> because if you are having that much fun with what you're eating, then your child is going to want to eat it. Yeah. Right. So literally, like you're just like, mm, mm. 
and you're having this amazing relationship with whatever you're eating, the child is going to want it too, because you're having a great time. Yeah, exactly. You're showing them that food is something enjoyable. And as opposed to uh, trying to convince them, you show them with by example, right? That yeah. is some of the, the big things that parents can do is literally eat with your child, let your child get messy mm-hmm. and show them how to lick their fingers. Show them. I mean, as a therapist, that's hard for me to do because you don't want my spit in your child's mouth. But I used to tell parents, I'm going to get more of your child's saliva in my mouth than they will ever get of mine in yours because they will shove a Cheeto down my throat after they've licked it on a regular. <laughs> um, and they do it when I'm not quite paying attention. I've had so many slobbery Cheetos shoved in my mouth. I can't even count them. But um, like show them how to lick their fingers. Show them because then they're going to do it. Right. Yeah. And so put those previously refused foods in front of them without the expectation of them to take a bite. Maybe you talk about garden, uh, gardening is another one, like getting them to go to the grocery store with you, garden with you, learn okay. where food comes from, help you cook in the kitchen. Yeah, this is such all a winner of, one. Yeah, for sure. All of those things, getting them around food so you can talk about food. Um, talk about the color, the flavor, the texture. Is it a vegetable? Is it a fruit? Is it a protein? Is it a starch? Um, does it grow on a stalk? Does it grow on a bush? Is it round? Is it, you know, mm-hmm. oval? Is it, you know, what, what talk about it so that the next time a child sees a, a square salty orange cracker, they're going to be like, Oh, okay. So that's probably going to taste like my other orange salty square cracker. Or you can say, you know, this tastes, it's a fish shape, but it tastes a lot like that salty square orange cracker you eat. It's just mm. a goldfish. Yeah. Right? Yeah, totally. So then they have predictability around what's going to go in their mouth. Back to the spider example, if I have two different spiders, but they're going to be similar in the way they feel in your mouth. I can say, oh, that spider tastes just like this spider. He's just a little different shape. Mm. You're going to be more comfortable putting that in your mouth, right? Well, yeah, definitely, definitely. (laughs) And now um, regarding the parents who have like, maybe as an example, a five-year-old who's eating maybe 15 different foods and they're struggling to expand or have like more food to put on the table that they would actually start to enjoy that. And very often we see that in kids where they mainly like starch, like pasta, bread, crackers, cereals, and so on. They eat very few vegetables, sometimes a little bit of fruit and very few proteins as well. And a lot of parents are actually concerned about um, nutrition intakes for their child, right? Whether it be micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, and proteins. I do see that quite often in my, in my own practice and with the families that I work with and parents, they get really worried, kind of scared even around mealtime because they want so much their child to, to be healthy pretty much. Right. So what would be like your best advice to give to those families out there who are dealing with this type of situation? 
Yeah. Well, parents got to come to the table knowing that it's not their responsibility whether the child eats the food or not. Let's start there. Like parents got to come to the table grounded, release their anxiety. My parents all listen to positive affirmation tracks. They, you know, drink your calming tea, whatever you need to drink to bring <laughs> yourself to the yeah. table in a calm way to not push, show and put new foods in front of your child. Don't put 10 new foods in front of your child all at once, but pick, pick a food that is similar and something they already eat. So maybe your child likes those white tan foods, right? So maybe you, not that cauliflower has a lot of um, nutrients, nutrients. but maybe you do cauliflower because it's white, yeah. right? Or maybe they start doing um start doing something that is similar to say a french fry it's just orange it's an orange sweet potato fry or maybe you start to then put green beans in front of them that are fried green beans even though they're not super healthy they're still green beans and you put a fried green bean and a regular green bean right mm. well the fried green bean is going to be crunchier and it's gonna the kids typically like crunchy foods it's gonna be salty I'm not eating okra that's boiled, but I will eat fried okra. I know that fried is not necessarily the healthiest, but you start exposing them to foods that are as similar uh, to foods that they like as possible, right? So that they can, and you start talking about it, right? But just exposing them to the food you want them to eat over. If I can do a sweet potato for 20 years, you can put different. <laughs> You can put put green beans or broccoli or whatever, but you can't expect your child to eat broccoli if you don't eat broccoli. Yeah. I can't tell you how many parents come to me. I want my kids to eat vegetables. My husband won't eat peas, won't eat broccoli, won't eat, you know, anything green. Mm -hmm. Well, if dad is making icky faces over here on the side because he doesn't want to eat the green stuff, then your child's not going to eat the green stuff because dad's freaking out over there. So you gotta, you, you, I mean, at some point you have to release them, let them choose whether they're going to eat it or not, show them that it's good and keep putting previously refused foods in front of them. Mm. That's the, there's no magic pill to this. It's just keep putting it in front of them, keep talking about it, keep showing until boom, they eat. Like I had a um, two-year-old on the, she was about two years old, not four, almost two, like say 19 20 months Stella was a mess I mean you could go on my tubes to tables website and see pictures of Stella you I mean Stella was Stella was a hot mess Stella would scream the moment her mom went into the kitchen oh my god because she knew that mom was going to be cooking stuff right and she did not want to eat it we built a a age-appropriate mealtime schedule she was brought to the table at the age of two six times a day breakfast snack lunch snack dinner snack right six times a day she came to the table in a mealtime routine with familiar and unfamiliar foods it took her four weeks she ate 50 or 60 new foods without a problem only because her mom stayed consistent stuck to the mealtime routine stuck to the schedule stuck to showing her house, stuck to the whole family coming to the table. You know what? And she was, if, if Stella was getting ready to pitch a fit, she would finish the routine. We still clean up. We still do all of that stuff. And then Stella went to her room by herself until the family finished. She didn't get mm. video games. She didn't get 
playtime. She didn't get to sit in mom's lap. She didn't get, you're done. You can clean. We're going to clean up. You're going to go to your room until we're done. Mm. You don't get the pop tart <laughs> 10 minutes later. Yeah. You know, you don't drink and eat between mealtimes unless it's water because you need to stay hydrated. Kids don't eat between mealtimes. They don't, there's a playtime. There's a mealtime. There's a, a color time. There's a nap time. There's a bath time. And you don't eat in the bathtub. You don't, mm-hmm. you don't play when you're supposed to eat. You don't bring electronics to the table to distract them from learning about the food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. None of that is going to help them learn about food. So you, you have to keep the routine consistent, keep familiarizing them with food, keep showing them how to do it and don't let them eat between meals. Mm. So One of the worst advice I've ever heard from a pediatrician, just put a bunch of food out on the table. They'll eat when they're ready. I was like, what? <laughs> it's awful advice. Like if you snack all day, you get fewer calories than if you're hungry and you eat a meal. Like, I don't know if you do intermittent fasting or anything like that, but when I started intermittent fasting, like I, I tell you 1130 came and I, I ate a meal. I ate a whole meal because yeah. I was hungry. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of what parents need to do. Mealtime schedule. What is age appropriate for your child? Look it up. Mm-hmm. If you don't know, you can look it up. You keep to a mealtime schedule, a mealtime routine for older kids. You pay attention to your child's um, reaction to the food. You modify where that spider is, you know, and their reaction, right, to what they're tolerating with this new food, okay, and you show them, and yeah. you, and it, 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 go back to the way your grandmother and your great grandmother did. They, the triangle with the cowboy, ding, 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 time to eat, you know. <laughs> Everybody came in and washed their hands. Everybody came to the table and sat around the table. You smelled food. You looked at food. You, you experienced food. Everybody cleaned up their plate, put it in the sink, and they went back out to do fence repair or whatever they were doing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you keep that so that kids can learn about food. Mm. This is so um, good to hear. And this is something that is good for mealtime to have a like, consistent routine. It's the same thing for kids with sleeping issues, right? We need to. So routine is something so fundamental for for kids development in general, I, I must say, like, and around mealtime, this is definitely something very important. And I like the fact also that you mentioned to bring your child six time at the table throughout the day. So not only for the main uh, meals, but also for the snacks, because sometimes snacks are a little bit like on the way, sometimes even like uh, the child can just grab something they want in the pantry there and they eat it like while watching TV or whatever that is. So this is something very important that parents uh, should be doing then to all snack foods don't have to be low calorie. Snack foods can be like a mealtime food. It can Mm -hmm. be when you think of a mealtime food, it can be, um, you know, an egg, apple, cheese, and an egg. It can be Um, it can be a piece of lunch meat and cheese, a half of a sandwich and an orange. Mm. Like it doesn't have to be a bag of chips and a Coke. Like yeah. it can, <laughs> you, remember parents are responsible for what goes in front of the child. Yeah. What are you going to feed your child? That is your responsibility. 
Mm-hmm. And if you choose to feed your child candy bars and Cokes, cause that's what they eat, then that's all they're ever going to eat. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to choose to keep putting healthy foods in front of them and eating healthy food yourself mm-hmm. in front of them so that they will then learn to eat healthy foods. Like yeah. it's, it is, it, there is no magic pill. There's no, it's, you'd be consistent and you let the child have predictability about what's coming at mealtime. And even if they don't know exactly what food it is, they know there's a beginning, a middle and end. They know that mom is gonna be eating too. They have clear expectations. Then you get a body rhythm that's I'm eating at the same time every day. That means my if, I, if I'm late, my stomach's gonna be hungry. I've got a hunger drive, right? Um, so yeah, that's, mm. that's really important that, that, yeah. that families, and I know I tell some parents I want them to do this six times a day and I think they're going to fall out of their chair and have a heart attack. You know, <laughs> I literally, I'm like, and if six times a day is not realistic or if they go to daycare, daycare is already structured. Daycare is yeah. going to take care of daycare. You take care of the meal times that are under your control, under your roof, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then don't let daycare do daycare. Right now, if they go to grandma, you know, barter with grandma to follow the same rules that you follow at your house right mm-hmm. or similar things at least not letting them run around eating whatever at grandma's house but and even if you can't you keep the rules consistent at your house yeah so that would be the same thing for like uh, parents who are divorced to to try to come up with like a plan that is very similar in both uh places right Yeah, and some divorced parents work well together and some divorced parents don't, right? Like, Mm. and if you happen to be in one of those situations where you have a partner, previous partner, ex-partner, former partner, whatever, and they're not going to do it, then you do it in your house because then your child is going to learn the rules in your house are different than the rules in mommy or daddy's house, right? You you follow so that your child's going to eat well in your house. They may not eat well over there but they'll eat well in your house. That's the reason kids in therapy, I I used to not understand a lot of times why, even though parents came back in therapy with me when I have my brick and mortar and parents would sit there and do the therapy with me, they would be in the driver's seat. I would coach them through it. And they would say, but Miss Nina, they'll eat three, 400 calories here with you, all kinds of new foods, but I get them home and they won't do it. Hmm. The environment's different. The expectations are different. Miss Nina is going to make sure mom's following her rules and I'm following mine I get home and my environment's different so I don't I don't do the same things so when we started working virtually and I opened up the computer and saw people's houses in the environment I was like whoa <laughs> <laughs> whoa whoa put the dog away okay if you're trying to get your five-year-old to eat make sure your two-year-old is also at the table and they're not running around watching Barney or whatever else they're watching and like turn off the TV, take away all the cell phones. Everybody comes to the table at the same time. Like you, you, the rules apply to everyone, right? You can't, or the child, there was no table. I had one family, I opened up the screen and there was no table. I'm like, what do you never told me? You didn't have a table. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. No, they're not, they never just on a table, you know? And so these things that we don't know what's going on in somebody else's environment can be um, reasons why kids won't eat. Yeah, definitely. And that's such a good point. The environment where we actually have a meal 
is so, so important if the environment is sort of stressful for the child. Um, and again, they might be sitting by themselves at the table while everybody else is doing something else. This should be like a moment throughout the day where we're happy, it's calm, we're happy to get together around a good meal and just chat and, you know, like yeah, and, yeah, and you don't I, have to be Betty Crocker. You don't have to be. Knows who <laughs> Betty Crocker is. You don't have to know. You don't have to be some amazing cook. Yeah. Like you don't have to make this so difficult. It can be the foods that you always eat. You just make the environment different, mm-hmm. right? It's it's that you feed your child, you know, a tablespoon of of meatloaf not a whole piece of meatloaf. It can be that you serve your child, if they can't handle meatloaf, a teaspoon or a little bitty piece, mm-hmm. right? It can, it can be, you know, it can be whatever you eat is what your older child should be able to eat. Unless of course they have allergies and then you're probably whole family, that's a whole nother subject with allergies, yeah. but um, that, that they should eat what you eat. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the way it works, yeah. right? If, you, if you're having a short order cook for your child um, because they have a medical condition or a sensory processing condition, then, then you definitely need to be working with a, a therapist to help bring that in line so that you are eating with your child. The same rules apply. It doesn't matter if they have sensory processing. It matters that you are engaging them at a lower level of their tolerance that spider is further away right that they're they have their sensory processing means that you're not going to throw a piece of broccoli on their plate or put it in their hand right because they're probably going to lose it that piece of broccoli might need to be you know a a few a few a, a feet away and the broccoli comes closer the child looks at it moves back the child broccoli moves back right a few minutes later the broccoli comes forward, maybe the child doesn't react as much. So the broccoli comes a little closer and the child moves back, the broccoli moves back. This is literally positive desensitization. Yeah, this is such a good idea to work this way. This is, um, I think it's very helpful to have this um, visual of the spider and like trying to just like desensitize the child um when they are facing a new food right so we really get to listen to what's going on with the child and respect their own um their own pace in terms and sometimes we as parents we want them to eat that as soon as possible but this is not the reality of the child right so we really get a it's like a dance right we really yeah. gotta try to to um well there's consent so i tell people consent is a thing from the time their babies are born you need your baby's consent before you put a bottle or breast in their mouth Mm -hmm. you get consent by them opening mouth rooting and coming forward what are we teaching our babies and our children if we're teaching them consent doesn't matter yeah that's that's crazy because consent matters you should consent to what people do to your own body. Mm. Like we have consent for a reason, right? And and I, I will tell parents just like that, like would would you want somebody to do something to your body that you didn't consent to? Mm-hmm. No. So yeah, why is it okay then for you to do stuff to your child's body that they didn't consent to? That's so true. Yeah, totally. When you're teaching them that what the adult wants is more important than their own body. Yeah. And what they want for their own body. 
that's a that's a that's a mistrusting relationship. So this relationship around food, get back to the the dyad, the relationship, right, and the roles of responsibilities and and respecting the child's right to refuse. I have a right to not eat chitlins. I'm never going to eat the nasty things. I don't care how much you, they're disgusting. They're not allowed in my house. My husband can eat them all day long. I'm never going to eat chitlins. Okay. So now if you say, okay, Nina, you can either eat chitlins or you can eat boiled okra. I'm going to eat the boiled okra. I may not like it, but if those are my choices, I'm going to eat the boiled okra. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So giving your child, sometimes giving them a choice can, can give them a sense of power and control. Mm-hmm. Do you want the orange or do you want the apple? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, a great way to work as well. Totally. Do you want to wear the blue shorts or the red shorts? It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. They eat the blue shorts or the red shorts. It doesn't matter if they eat an orange or an apple. It's a fruit. It, it matters that you've given them control. Do you want your peanut butter and jelly sandwich cut in strips, in a triangle, in squares? Yeah. And sometimes it also helps children when we propose them a choice, I suppose that it's either too broad and they have too many choices Mm -hmm. or that we actually suggest only one thing and they have to choose this very specific thing. Right. Yeah. 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 So you can go, we're going to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but you can choose to have, how do you, how you want, you want me to cut it in half and a triangle and strips and squares. You want to cut it. Mm -hmm. You want to choose the jelly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then, then they, they get some control. They get some choice. Nobody likes to be told. What if every time you got up, your spouse said, oh, you're eating this for breakfast and you're eating this much of it because I said so. And if you don't eat it, I'm going to feed it to you. (laughs) Yeah. I'd be like, you want me to freaking punch you? (laughs) You Like you think about it really. Like think if another adult was doing what you were doing to your child, what would your reaction be? Mm-hmm. That's so true. We cannot like, we're not like supposed to, to do. They have the right to decide for themselves. That's always true. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And yeah, we build structure. You change the environment. You keep everything consistent. You make sure they're hungry because they're not snacking all day. You show them so that they understand what's going on and that the food is safe. Um, I wouldn't eat sour cream for the longest time when I was a kid because I thought it was sour. I told my, I was like, you say, why is my mom feeding me sour food? Why would she eat that? Right. And I love sour cream now, but like I, when I remember as a kid going, I am never eating anything that's sour. Mm, right. Yeah. Just because the word, the other thing parents, if you, if you, if a kid goes, what's that? Parents will tell them what it is. I never tell a kid what a food is. I'm like, I don't know. What does it look like? I don't know. What does it smell like? Mm. I don't know what does it feel like I don't know what does it taste like so as soon as you give a food a name you give it power Mm. so you get them to to decide for themselves what it smells like what it tastes like and so on it looks like let them guess yeah it looks like a little tree yeah and you can actually play some games with them that way too right yeah yeah for sure for sure yeah so Nina as we bring this interview to an end um I'd like to know if you had to tell parents like I want you to my to remember this specific thing if you're struggling with your child trying to get new uh, eat new food 
Um, if you want them to remember one thing you said today, what would it be? It's not your responsibility. Mm -hmm. Not your responsibility to decide if your child eats or how much they eat. That's not mm -hmm. your responsibility. That's your wow. child's responsibility. This is you so great. You can't. So it's only going to be worse. You're going to create more mistrust, more battle of wills. You're going to give your child more power to manipulate you. Mm. Yeah. It's I not your it. job. That's not your responsibility to, to, to your, your child. That's not, that's not yours. You yeah. don't own that. Sorry. <laughs> no, but I love it. I mean, it relieves so much pressure from the parent's shoulder. It's just like, I'm sure many uh, people listening right now will be like, oh my God. Okay. Yeah, it's not your responsibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Decide, you know, they decide whether they will eat and how much they will eat. Yeah. Your job is to decide when, where, and what they will eat. That's so true. Thanks and for sharing that. Yeah. <laughs> and if parents want to, to follow you and maybe even work with you or want to, um, uh, yeah, where they Yeah, I do a lot of parent coaching. Yeah. So um, teaching parents how to be their child's best feeding therapist, because I think um, as soon as we teach parents how to do this at home, mm -hmm. um, then they don't need a therapist anymore. Yeah. Um, so you can reach me at tubes, two tables. It's the number two. So T-U-B-E-S, the number two tables.com. You can email me there. Um, I am on Instagram. Sometimes I'm active. Sometimes I'm not, not very consistent. <laughs> um, and then um, I do have um, let's talk feeding babies.com, which okay. is a Facebook group for parents to come in and ask questions. Um, so they can always come in there. But mm -hmm. uh, if you want to work with me, go ahead and reach out, email me on the website and uh, you can look at all of our courses that we have for parents. Um, and then, like I said, I do individual coaching as well. Mm -hmm. um, to help you learn how to do this in your own home. I hold you accountable. I keep you on the right track. I support parents. We do a lot of um, supporting parents to come to the table with the right mindset, keeping them grounded, focused, um, and calm. So yeah. if you work with me, I, I'd be glad to. I work with parents in Canada all the time. have several parents from Canada that work on bottle, that we've worked through bottle aversions. Several babies have avoided tube feedings in Canada wow. because I work with moms on how to gain consent and build trust and let their babies drive the bus. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think about four now, I'm up to four out of Canada that have avoided feeding tubes. So it's amazing. Thank you so much for the work you do, Nina. This is, I mean, it's so important because like, you know, you're helping children to build their foundation for the rest of their life. So this is super important. And thank most you. importantly, thanks for being with me today. It was a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Okay. You take care. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this fourth episode of the Born to Be Well podcast. What Nina shared with us through this episode was super helpful to help us understand what we can do to support our picky eaters during mealtime to make those meals a lot more enjoyable, not only for them, but for the whole family as well. If you enjoyed this episode, I invite you to share it with a friend on social media. 
You can also follow me on Instagram at Herbs and Calm. The link is in the bio. And I'll be sharing a lot more information there related to natural health and personal development. Now it's time to get out there and be well. <music>